0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel is likely familiar to many of us. We've probably heard these stories since we were young, but it's not always the easiest to find in your Bible. So Daniel's in the major prophets. It's just right of the larger prophetic books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And if you get to Hosea, you've gone too far, all right? So this morning, I am very thankful and grateful to preach the first sermon in our new series titled, Daniel, God's Faithfulness in a Strange Land. God's Faithfulness in a Strange Land. So over the next seven weeks, we'll be studying what I personally consider to be one of the most relevant books in the entire Old Testament, likely in the Bible. And by looking at God's faithfulness to these Jewish exiles, I pray that we will all learn to trust in God's faithfulness even when we find ourselves as exiles in a strange land. This truth gives us confidence when we feel, as the Scriptures teach us, as strangers and aliens in this world. So as we uh, study this first chapter of Daniel this morning, I pray that each of us will see that our God is faithful to His exiled children. Our God is faithful to His exiled children. Stand with me, please, as we read together from God's Holy, inspired, and inerrant word. We've got a lot, so just bear with me. Daniel chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, good looking, suitable for instruction and in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them in the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend the king. Among them, the Judites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave them the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigns your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king." So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine which they were to drink and gave them vegetables. God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of that time, the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend to the king, and every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king counseled them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom, and Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So first, it is necessary for us to understand that the book of Daniel, it didn't just drop out of thin air, right? The book has a context and it deals with real people who were experiencing a real crisis. Right? When Daniel wrote this book, he and his readers, they, they already knew everything that had occurred because occurred they had lived it, right? And this context is summarized to us in verse 1 where we learn that Babylon led by King Nebuchadnezzar, laid siege to King Jehoiakim's Judah. Now many of you know that the southern kingdom of Judah is kind of this mixed bag, this mixed history of good kings who are faithful to the Lord and wicked kings who succumb to political pressure and even idolatry. And Jehoiakim's father, Josiah, was a righteous king. But sadly, Jehoiakim, was more concerned with fulfilling the desires of Pharaoh and neighboring Egypt. Now Israel, in the time, it was a really highly valued region. Why? Because it connected Egypt with the east. They kind of called this area the king's highway. So there was always political pressure in the region. And the political power now had shifted from Egypt to Babylon after Egypt's decisive defeat at the Battle of Carchemish. And in seeking to assert their newfound dominance, they staged three major attacks on Jerusalem. The first attack was in 605 B.C. And this is the context of Daniel chapter 1. At this time, only some of the Jews were taken captive. And they, they let the rest of the nation kind of go as a, a proxy government to do their bidding. And eventually, Nebuchadnezzar would deport even more Jews when that proxy government, when Jehoiakim, didn't do what he wanted to do. Well, we learned that after his first victory, King Nebuchadnezzar took vessels, is what the text says, from the temple and placed them in the temple of his gods. Why would he do this? Well, it kind of sounds strange to us. It actually aligns really well with the worldview of the ancient Near East. These nations, they they viewed war not just as a show of political power and military dominance, but as the battle of one's God. So this is my God against your God, or in Babylon's case, multiple gods. So my God against your gods. So in taking these items from Israel's temple, he was declaring victory over God, over Yahweh. He was declaring to the world that me and my God, which... In Nebuchadnezzar's case was kind of the same, but we are greater than Yahweh. He was asserting his own superiority. Now this attitude, as we'll see in the coming weeks, eventually ended in Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and his downfall. But for this brief time, all seems lost. For the Israelites, there's two major questions. They likely are passing through their minds. The first was this: Has God's kingdom been defeated? Has Yahweh's reign come to an end? Now obviously, sitting here in in, in our context, we know the answer to this question. But we have a lot more information that we do, right? We're 2,500 years apart. We know how it would all play out. But even here in verse 2 of our text, if you look with me, we begin to see an answer to the question. Notice that the verse says, the Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him. And this word Lord here is Adonai. So Adonai, our sovereign Lord, handed over Judah to the Babylonians. It was not merely Nebuchadnezzar's great military prowess and all this empire he has built. This event, as are all events, was according to the sovereign plan of our God. Even this defeat and exile. In it, God actually was fulfilling a promise that if the people were wicked, And they did not obey His command that they would be exiled and even exiled for 70 years. And we see this exact promise fulfilled. It was even prophesied in Isaiah 39. The prophet spoke of this. He says, Isaiah 39, verses 6-7, through Look, the days are coming when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until today Will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So we see here that none of this exile, nothing that was happening, was outside of the Lord's control. And I think if we boil down the book of Daniel to its essential parts, we render it down, I believe we get this truth. Our God is in control. Our God is in control and He is sovereign. All that comes to pass, whether we can sit here and make sense of it or not, is accomplishing His purposes. So, to the first major question that Daniel and his compatriots may have been asking, we say no. God's kingdom has not been defeated and it will remain forever. Why? Because God is in control. Do you ever find yourself wondering if God has lost control? Be honest, of course, that can't happen. But when we start to take our eyes off of God and begin to look at the world, we have some questions that start popping up in our head. Too often we look to the culture and we look to the current political landscape and we cannot see what God's doing. God, why would you let that happen? But just because we don't have all the answers doesn't mean that God has lost control. He has a plan. And we have far, far too narrow of a a perspective to see all that God is doing and will do in the world. He is working all things together for His glory and for our good. We only need to be faithful where He is planted with us. When we take our eyes off of that and put it on this one thing, God, why would you let this happen? Why would you let that happen? And look at the way this is going. We seem to lose perspective of God's control over all things. But see, temple vessels were not the only things taken into exile. Verse 4 informs us that the Lord also allowed the Babylonians to take captive young men from the royal family and nobility. Now these young men were taken to Nebuchadnezzar's palace where they were instructed in the Chaldean language, which implies that it was having to do with some of the, uh, the, the, the magicians and wisdom of their day that they thought, which was very pagan. Um, And so they're instructed in this language and literature so that they could advise the king based off of those practices. Verse 4 speaks about the nature of these individuals. It says, They were young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledgeable, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. So they chose the, the best and the brightest young men to serve the king. That's who they wanted to take with them. And I think the king's intentions are pretty clear. This was an attempted assimilation and indoctrination of the young men into the Babylonian way, into the Babylonian worldview and life. And as the Babylonian empire increased, Nebuchadnezzar, he would need advisors and diplomats who knew the culture he was attempting to conquer. Who knows Israel better than Israel? So we're going to take these Israelites, make them Babylonians, and then they can do our bidding. They would be puppets of the king. And in verse 6, we're introduced to these four men, uh, likely aged 14 to 16, possibly 20, but probably 14 to 16. Their names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And one of the first ways that the Babylonians attempted to indoctrinate the young men was by stripping them of their Hebrew names. Now, while in English, this isn't immediately apparent. Um, each of these young men's names communicates something about God. Roughly, Daniel means my judge is God or God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah is Yahweh has helped me. Anytime you see El or Yah in a proper name, it's, it's referring usually to God. And their names were changed to Belteshazzar. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to give names to some of the gods of Babylon, namely Bel, Aku, Madruk, and Nebo. So by robbing these young men of their identity, Babylon believed that they could form them into anything they wanted. They're going to strip them down and then we're going to build them back up the way that we want. Forget your homeland. Forget your customs. Forget your God. This is how a culture that is against God seeks to operate. It attempts to rob us of our God-given identity and force us to conform to its ways, its beliefs, and its standards. It's interesting how even today, some 2,500 years later, we still rob some of these young men of their identity. What What do you know them as? Daniel and who? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But that's not their names. Anyway, throughout the Bible, we see Babylon used as a symbol for God's enemies. It's a reoccurring theme. Even today, we would call the enemies of God, the world, the city of man, whatever you want to call it, a type of Babylon. And while we often find ourselves living in Babylon right with its pressures, we are citizens of the heavenly city. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. So we know that this world is not our home, but one day we will be in this new Jerusalem. So it's not that different, our situations at times. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So regardless of how comfortable you feel as this earth being your home or whatever nation in your home, it is ultimately not our home. Our home is in the new Jerusalem. So we live as strangers, we live as exiles, looking to live faithful lives in Babylon, in a culture opposed to God. And I don't know if you're like me, but this seems to be more and more the case. Now, it's easy to imagine that with all that pressure that Daniel would have caved to the culture. I mean, why not? In some ways, he was really set up to have a good opportunity to serve the house of the king, to enjoy all that Babylon had to offer. offer a comfortable life in the king's court was just waiting for him. But Daniel and his friends, they were purposed to serve God. And they would not fall to any vain promises from the king. While there were aspects of the culture that Daniel was willing to accept, he was firm in his convictions. And he would not let those lines be crossed. You read about his stand. It's, it's very, very popular, very famous to us. Familiar in verse 8 through 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in a worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now, Daniel learned their language. He even learned their literature and their culture. He even responded to his pagan name. But he would not eat the king's food. He would not cross that line. He would not let himself be defiled. The, the, the chief eunuch was, was gracious to Daniel, but see, this, this guy, he was directly to the king, so he feared that my head is going to be you know cut off uh, if you're, you're looking malnourished. So he didn't like the repercussions. So we're not going to do this. But Daniel then went to the guard over him and he actually received a little more favor. They've even said, hey, you can take the food for yourself, you know. But after a test of 10 days of only eating vegetables, the young men were not starving and skinny, but were supernaturally healthier than all the others. So the guard obliged, and they continued to eat this way for all three years of their training in the University of Babylon. So scholars actually are quite divided as to why these young Hebrew men rejected the king's food. Um, Specifically the meat and the wine. Okay, So compared to the other things they accepted, I guess when you first read it, it seems a little insignificant. But see, it mattered to Daniel. If you're like me at first, you would think, well, he's trying to keep kosher. It's the unclean nature. But wine is technically kosher, so that doesn't seem to be the case. And I believe it may have been because the food was devoted to idols, as it certainly was, and he refused to be defiled. However, it's not certain that the vegetables didn't come from the king's table or that he even continued to eat this way his whole life. So we can't be absolutely sure. But it does seem to me that the real issue is Daniel's devotion and reliance on God. Learning, training, eating the king's rich food would allow Babylon to take credit for the wisdom and the understanding of Daniel and his friends. But by only eating vegetables... The king, and probably unknowingly to him, could actually take very little credit. Now, let me just clarify, this text isn't promoting a vegan diet, okay? If that's your thing, that's fine. That's not what it's saying. What it's communicating is that even though Daniel and his friends were, by their standards, malnourished, they continued to be physically and mentally fit, which are very closely related, because the Lord was the source of their strength. It was not the superiority of the king's food. God sustained these young men. Verse 17 further communicates this truth by declaring that God gave them knowledge and understanding. It was not the great teachers, like I said, at University of Babylon or the great food from the king's table. God sustained these young men. He is in control. He is king. And hopefully you can see that it's not about the food. I mean, any attempt to, to dwindle this text down to what we call like a Daniel diet or a Daniel fast is really missing the point. Far from a weight loss plan. Now remember, they got fatter, but anyway. Daniel is teaching us to rely on God and to stay true to our biblical convictions. So we have to ask ourselves, as citizens of the kingdom of God, living in Babylon, Where do we draw the line? At what point do we say this far and no further? This, This Babylon we call the world is constantly trying to indoctrinate us and our young people, telling us how to talk, how to act, which way we should go. Babylon teaches us to hate one another. Babylon says that you are your own God and whatever you feel is true. Babylon teaches us to lie, to steal, to cheat, to get to the top. Babylon screams at us with lies of pornography and false gender identity and redefining of marriage or whatever you want to put there. And far too often, people who claim the name of Christ bow down and willingly cross every possible line. Sometimes even in the name of love. Turning their backs on Jesus and His Word. Brothers and sisters, we must not succumb to hate. But at some point, we must take a stand For the sake of Christ, this is the line and we're not going to cross. In John 17, 15 through 18, Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. So as Christians, we must wrestle with this reality daily that we are not of the world, but we have been sent into the world. And this is kind of a balance, right? We must be bold like Daniel and say, no, king, I don't care what it costs. I'm not going to move. I'm not crossing that line. I may lose my job. I may go to jail, but I will not defile myself. Now, let's be clear. This is not every issue. Daniel was willing to give a lot in, in, in several places, but there are places that we will not go. There are lines we will not cross, and we will not bow to the culture of Babylon. Now, on the other side of this coin, we must take our stand, but we must take it with grace and humility. Right? Jesus sent us into the world to spread the gospel, to be a witness to him, not to burn it down. And if you look at Daniel, he strikes a good balance. He holds his convictions with a lot of humility. When he speaks to the guard, he says, please test your servants for 10 days. He didn't say, I'm going to cut your throat if you make me eat that. It's just not there. Throughout the book of Daniel, we see Daniel and his friends holding firm convictions, robust biblical convictions, but doing so with grace and humility. We're not called to be zealots. We're not called to go and start picking fights. It's also interesting to note that Daniel, he didn't actually make this a public matter. It was, it was a private matter. The king likely never even knew that he rejected his food. It was never his goal to cause unrest, but at the same time, he would not compromise and he would not defile himself. Let's pick up in verse 17 and see how God responded to the faithfulness of these young men. Verse 17 says, God gave these four young men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of that time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, none were found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend to the king. And every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. So here we see that God honored the faithfulness of these four young men by granting them knowledge and understanding. He also gave Daniel the ability to interpret visions and dreams. And we're going to learn more about this gift in the weeks to come. But once these three years of training were complete, the king interviewed the young men and he found them to be not just better, not just twice as good, five times as good, ten times better than any of the mediums or the magicians in the kingdom, however they were getting their knowledge. So they served and advised the king. They went from Jerusalem to Babylon and they were serving the king. Now throughout this chapter, we see again the complete and sovereign control of God. Three times I think we see this. It says, first, God gave King Jehoiakim into the hands of Babylon. Okay, It's God who gave them. Next, God gave Daniel favor with the chief eunuch and the guard. It's God who gave that as well. And finally, God gave the young men wisdom and understanding despite their less than satisfactory diet, we might say. So what you should see in this text is that God is in control of this situation and He is using these young men even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of what we might call a trial or a tragedy, He is right there and He is using these men and He is completely in control. Now Daniel is very careful in His wording to make sure we recognize that their rise and their influence, that was not Nebuchadnezzar. That was not Babylon. It was my God who brought me there, who sustained me, who's using me. And their knowledge and their wisdom, it didn't come from Babylon. It was God who blessed these young men. He honored their faithfulness. Why? Because our God is a faithful God. He is a faithful God. We must also acknowledge the fact that these young men were able to withstand the Babylonian re-education program and remain true to their values. right? And this is actually a testament, I think, to the learning and discipleship that they learned at home. We don't know who their parents are, but, but they, they're incredible people. At 14 to 16 years old, which is you know more advanced than what our culture would say 14 to 16, but still, they were young men, so they had completed their Hebrew education. They knew the truth. These teenagers, and they knew how to remain faithful to their God. They didn't have mom, they didn't have dad telling them what to do. They knew the Word of God. They knew what to do. It was not Babylon who taught them that. And it was only due to their strong foundation that they could go into Babylon and continue to excel. Fathers and mothers, could your teenagers be sent into Babylon today and remain true to their convictions? Could they give a defense of their faith after this kind of Babylonian reeducation? I mean, I know when I left for college, I was not prepared. I was deep into the clutches of an unbiblical worldview before I ever sought Christ and devoted myself to His Word. Students, are you prepared to live for Christ in the midst of a culture that wants nothing to do with Him? Because you must decide. If you don't draw that line in the sand, you will go right along with anything that the culture asks of you. And this is often far much harder than it seems. Right? When everyone is going a certain way, it's so easy to follow along. We must take a stand. Why is it that we want to follow what everybody else is doing? you ever been to the grocery store? Probably the Rouse's, which there's always long lines why is it that everybody, if there's one line, everybody wants to get behind the long line, even if there's one on the other side open? There's just something we just inherently, we see, oh, well, this must be the only one to go to. Why is it that every, all these things in life, we want to follow after everybody else, when you could already checked out your groceries and been home and probably cooked, because they're taking a long time over there. But anyway, anyway, <laughs> we mentioned earlier that The exiles, they would have been asking two questions. We we talked about the first one. The first one, has God's kingdom been defeated? What did we say? No, God is in control. But there's another question I believe that they would have been asking after being taken captive and thrown into an ungodly culture. Has God forgotten me? Has He forgotten His covenant people? And to this, we give the same answer. No, God is in control. Look how he's been faithful to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He is faithful every step of the way. And as we continue to learn more and more about their experiences, look at God's faithfulness to these young men, even in exile, even in Babylon. Now, do you ever feel yourself asking that question? God, have you forgotten me? Does your life ever seem to be so out of whack that you even begin to question whether God really cares? Or maybe you've continued in sin for so long that you're certain He's moved on from me. Look, I had my chance. I've lost it. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful. And He does not forget His children. We have a good father. What do good fathers do? Good fathers do not leave their needy children. Daniel and his friends could have looked to their circumstances and determined that God was no longer with them. Look, if God cared, I'd still be home. I'd still be in the promised land. What am I doing out here? But it was during the exile. It was actually during those trials that they saw God move in powerful ways. Much more powerful than anything they had seen in their life. Well, look with me now to the final verse in the passage. Verse 21. And this is one of the most impactful to me, really in the entire passage. Daniel one twenty one. It's not very long. It says, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. And that's it. Why is that impactful? Well, church, this is 70 years. 70 years. 70 years in Babylon and that's just when the edict is given that they could return. For Daniel, this means that from around age 15, 15, into his late 80s, likely his 90s, he served in Babylon, and he never returned home. He never returned to Jerusalem. We don't find his name among those returning in the book of Ezra. He didn't go back. You know, there's a danger in studying Daniel that you kind of start to glorify the exile. It's specifically the life of Daniel, right? The dare to be Daniel, which is, which is right and it's true, but it's not everything. And we certainly see in Daniel a man who did great things in the name of the Lord, even from a very young age, and that is very encouraging. However, these are only snapshots, just little glimpses of a life of service. Most of his 70 or so years were not glamorous, He was exiled for Jerusalem. He was thrown into a pagan culture as an outcast. And he never returned home. There's nothing glamorous about life in Babylon. And I think that's true for us, but this is what we were called to faithfully to serve our faithful God. Not just these mountaintop experiences. Right? That's incredible. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. That is incredible. What happened after? He escaped the lion's den. That is incredible. But he served God his entire life. And we also must wrestle with this reality. What if there's something that we want and we pray for? We just want to go home. And we know, God, if I just serve you, I'm going to get to go home. and I'm going to be faithful. But you never go home. You never get that thing that you want. And now for Daniel, this is what he was called to. And he served faithfully where he was planted. And God blessed him and used him. But just because we want something, and even just because we're doing the right things, does not mean that it's in the will of God. And that's okay. If we don't get the thing that we want, it doesn't mean that God's not in control. It's okay. God is still building his kingdom, God is still for us. It just doesn't, may not look exactly what we want it to look like. So, how do we apply this? How do we continue and not grow weary of doing good? Well, first, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. You know, if we look to our circumstances or to the world, and we start to look there more than to our faithful God, our faithfulness, it can begin to wander. Our our ability to continue. But no, we remember that we serve a faithful God. And wherever He's brought us, He is going to take us home. He sent His Son to die for you. This very same God, the, the very same God, who, who I, Jesus, who I believe was there in the fiery furnace, he came and he lived the perfect life for us. Right? God sent that God to die for us, for our sins. You think he's going to leave you? If he gave us his son, what good thing is he not going to, or what good thing is he going to hold away from us? Like a carrot in front, there's nothing. He will not leave us. So remember the faithfulness of your God, specifically in the person and work of Christ. Remember that whatever we're going through, our God remains to be faithful. Jesus, He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We serve a faithful God. Next, have you drawn a line? Have you drawn a line? Not talking about coloring. Are you conforming to culture? Or are you living as a witness for Christ sent into culture? Right, that, that's a hard line to draw. Have you decided which places in your life that I will go this far and no further? Now, whatever stage of life you're in, that's important, but especially to our young people, what, where are the places I'm not crossing that line? I'm going to serve the Lord. Even when people think I'm stupid. Even when people think they've got it all figured out. Yeah, most of your friends, they don't know anything anyway. Well, we don't, we don't know. Most of us, we don't really know. It's it's God and His Word that stands. And this life of faithfulness that continues and continues, that is something that will last. These little fleeting things, it's here and it's gone. You can try it if you want it. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't last. Whatever it is, whatever it is in your life that you're searching for, it's not going to fulfill. Have you drawn that line in a sand and for some of us, we have to think, are we, have we drawn that line? But do we stand on that line and then mock the other people on the other side of that line? Are we doing it with grace and humility? Because there's kind of a balance, right? I, and I've kind of probably followed the other one. But yes, we, we, we are going to stand. but We're going to be gracious. We're going to be humble. We're actually going to love our neighbor, not point at them and make fun of them and look at all those different things. Next, are you living a faithful life? Daniel served for his life, not just a teenager. Are you taking the short view or do you have a long view? Can you see all that the Lord is doing? Sometimes it's mundane. Sometimes it looks like working hard. Sometimes it looks like discipling your family, just like Daniel's parents. Sometimes it looks like very simple, mundane things. But often that's what it looks like to serve the Lord, is being faithful. Just where He's called you, what has what He called me to do today? Who has he called me to love? Who has he called me to share to? What does it look like today? It's very much, very much a grind like that. But that is sort of the beauty of the Christian life. And finally, have you trusted in our faithful Savior, Daniel? For all the great things that he did, and I'm excited that we get to continue to learn over the next several weeks about all the things that he did, and the Lord used him to do. But you know, he was imperfect. He was a sinner. Even Daniel, even if you feel like, yeah, I've done all the things that Daniel has, which probably don't, there is one who was faithful his entire life. Who was faithful unto death. The same Jesus. The same Jesus who stood with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in the furnace. He has come. He has lived a perfect life. He has died a sinner's death so that unfaithful sinners... Like us, could be part of this amazing heavenly city, this new Jerusalem. And yes, he works in us and he continues to conform us into his image, but it is all his work. It is all him, and he's the one who gets the glory. He has provided salvation for all who believe. So when we look at Daniel, we don't go away saying, you know what, I'm going to try harder. No, I'm going to trust in my faithful God. That's all it takes. I'm going to trust in my God. He's the one who's guided this. He's the one who's control. He's the one who's in control. I'm going to trust in His finished work. And Lord, just lead me wherever You call me. That's where I follow. Follow. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank You, Lord, just for the opportunity, Lord, to open up Your Word, Lord. Lord, I'm so encouraged to, Lord, see how You used. These young men, Lord, it's very young men in great ways. Lord, I thank you that even though we often feel like we're exiles, we often feel like we're in Babylon, even in times where we wonder where you are, Lord, you're right there with us. And we thank you that you are faithful today, that you will be faithful for all of our lives. Lord, help us to trust you. Lord, help us to be faithful to what You've called us to, but Lord, help us to trust You and trust in Your faithfulness above all things. Lord, help us not to just walk away wanting to grit our teeth and try harder, but to lay down what we have and trust in Jesus' finished work. we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You that You could be so loving to people who seem so unlovable.